So do you have any stories of your time on the Kreistar? One interesting aspect of uh, Kreistar was that when we were exploring uh, the islands in Indonesia, there were long distances from one island to another. So we took off from the boat, the boat sailed, and uh, that was before the days of GPS. There was no, we, we couldn't even imagine GPS, right? And uh, gradually, the haze developed during the day. The helicopter was short on fuel, and uh, we were already over water. We couldn't see land anymore, and there was no boat. So there were some anxious moments wondering whether we'll find the boat before we run out of fuel. <laughs> Today, a helicopter operates from CRA's ship Craystar, where men live and work for months on end as they move along new coasts searching for minerals. For those of you that have already listened to last week's episode, you will know that audio you just heard is talking about a ship called Craystar part floating exploration camp, part traveling geochemical laboratory, and perfect for the purpose it was designed for, the ship was used by CRA Exploration to explore for copper deposits in the Southwest Pacific in the late 1960s. The idea was born out of the necessity that after CRA discovered the Panguna deposit on the Pacific island of Bougainville, they wanted to explore the islands around to find out whether there were any other major copper deposits in the area and they needed to do this fast and effectively to stay ahead of their competitors. This is where Craystar came in. Last week's episode was part one of the story. If you missed it, here is a recap. How do we come to Craystar? Bougainville Copper discovery was made on foot in 1964. So the next step was the company wanted to know if there is another even better deposit close to the coast. Close to the coast is a key point because the cost of logistics increases exponentially with distance from the coast. Logical decision, let's use a Japanese trawler, put a helicopter platform on it and explore for copper. And in 65, 66, the company already had a great deal of experience in use of helicopters in New Guinea because in in 1962, the company used the helicopter in the program that uh, led to the discovery of Manton Price. And the contribution of Edgar Muchenikas, the company geochemist, was that as early as uh, exploration for iron ore at Manton Price, Edgar was in the field making assays every night. So in the morning, geologists had assays of samples that could make better decisions what to do next. Uh, they established a lab on Bougainville, and they also established a lab on Kreistar. So the reconnaissance program was very efficient because the guys did get the assays and they could undertake follow-up virtually next morning if uh, the copper assay of the stream sediment sample was high. In 1967-68, the Kreistar boat was used to complete reconnaissance for porphyry copper deposits close to the coast, all around New Britain, New Ireland, Manus, and north coast of New Guinea. My name is Ahmad, and welcome to Exploration Radio. This episode is part two of our story on a ship named Craystar. So come join us, and let's explore. One member of the Craystar team that we met in last week's episode was David McKenzie. My name is David McKenzie. I'm a geologist. 
1966, I was involved directly with the Grey Star, following up anomalies that they had found in 1965. So from 1965 to 1968, the Grey Star carried out first-pass reconnaissance exploration programs on pretty much all the Pacific islands between the northern coast of Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu, including the PNG coastline, an area that is roughly 3,000 kilometers long and up to a few hundred kilometers wide in places. And although some of you might be thinking that the area is mostly ocean, just remember that almost all of the islands in this area are covered by a thick tropical jungle, something that makes exploring them effectively nearly impossible. So after all this work, what type of results did CRA get out of the Craystar program? Now, in this area, after all this work, in 1968, we diamond drill tested one uh, anomaly in, in New Ireland without encouragement. We tested two on New Britain with low-grade results. And uh, by then, several competitors were able to get in because we had to relinquish areas as we went along. And uh, between 1968 and 1971, they didn't fare any better than we did. And... Uh, Somebody tested a low-grade porphyry deposit on New Ireland and another company, one on Manus Island, uh, a couple of other ones other than we did in New Britain. And uh, Utah and BHP, they drilled a prospect down on the weather coast of Guadalcanal uh, sometime in the 1970s, and they got no joy. There wasn't any other porphyry deposit found in the area we searched with the Grey Star. So the work was very effective in a defensive sense of getting there ahead of the competition. And the fact that our competitors had abortive efforts later, that was a measure of the advantage that we had developed with this technique. So Craystar had found some anomalies. CRA had tested them, but failed to find anything significant. Even still, the program was considered a success in a defensive sense because it allowed CRA to get to prospective areas and test them before the competitors got there. But that is not the whole story. The voice you heard at the start of the episode providing you the details of the Craystar program was Jacob Rebeck, another member of the Craystar team. My name is Jacob Rebeck, uh, geologist. I joined CRA Exploration in 1970 and uh, retired from CRA that became... Rio Tinto in 2003, and uh, I worked in New Guinea from 1970 until end of 1979. So how long did you end up staying with CRA? 32 years. Wow. And that was normal. My generation, that was normal. Like in good old days, it was uh, one wife and one company <laughs> to retirement. <laughs> Careers like that no longer exist. Now, the story of the Craystar does not end in 1968. In fact, it continued on for several years after. Here is Jacob to fill us in. And then in 1969 and 1970, Craystar sailed around other islands looking for bauxite. And again, with the chemical laboratory on the boat, and they discovered that the bauxite deposit called Waghena Island in Solomon Islands went all the way to Hebrides. And then the Craystar boat has gone to Sumatra and was taken over by the sister company. And the boat was renamed, so it was no longer Craystar. In Indonesia, when they were doing porphyry copper reconnaissance with the helicopter around Sumatra Island and Sulawesi, the boat was renamed Ratna Sumatera. 
1972, I was sent to Indonesia, ended up on the boat for uh, three months. And we were looking for bauxite in eastern archipelago. Uh, Timor, Alor, Halmahera, Seram, Minjul. And uh, I don't know what happened to the boat after that. Wow, that's a really, really interesting story for one boat. So now when you sit back and look at it, would you have been able to do exploration in those islands without Craystar? Uh, with great difficulty, yeah. So it was obvious in hindsight that the helicopter is the only way to do it. And the reason that a boat had to be used is that in those days, the helicopters didn't have the speed and the range. You know, these days you could probably do it from an airstrip with a jet helicopter that flies faster. Remember, the helicopter that was used on Chrysler was exactly the same helicopter as you see in the MASH TV series. You know, the one that has a tail that looks like a telegraph pole. So do you think Kraystar was the most cost-effective way to do exploration in that part of the world? Oh, yes, by far. By far the most cost-effective. So do you have any stories of your time on the Kraystar? When Kraystar was parked in a bay, the local villagers used the opportunity because the generators were running and there were lights, and our guys were fishing anyhow at night, right? So there were lights to attract fish. And uh, it was a Japanese trawler, so the toilets were made for the Japanese. It was almost impossible to get into the toilet, right? So we were all men on board, so uh, you can well imagine uh, how, we, how we did the peeing, right? One day I go and pee over the side, and after a while I think, this is strange, the, where's the sound? And I realized that I was peeing into someone's dugout canoe who was parked by the side. And he was so embarrassed he didn't want to say anything. <laughs> but generally, we had good relations with the people from the village. Always thought it was a great attraction for a boat to come and stay in the bay for a few days. Although Jacob worked on the Craystar from 1972 onwards, his involvement with the program actually started a year earlier when he was asked to carry out a review. Do you want to talk about how you came across Craystar? What was your involvement in and around Craystar? In about 1971 or 72, General Manager Exploration Don Carruthers asked me to prepare a report in which I reviewed progress of exploration by other companies in areas that have been previously explored by the Chrysler team. I was only reviewing the porphyry copper side of the program, which was 1967-1968, which was New Britain, New Ireland, Manus Island, and some sectors of the north coast of so-called New Guinea. So obviously, I read all the Chrysler reports, and then I tried to get as much information as possible on results that other companies have achieved in the areas which Chrysler has covered by first-past reconnaissance and then abandoned. The general manager, Don Carrados, he was concerned that uh, it was possible that Chrysler team has missed what later on uh, could become a valuable porphyry copper deposit. Well, in my report, which was 
probably dated 1972, I concluded that, uh, yes, the Chrysler exploration program was going too fast. And then in some cases, uh, there was no follow-up of stream sediment sample copper assay results that should have been followed up. And uh, that was probably partly due to logistical problems. Subsequently, if you go back to Chrysler results, yes, you could see in Chrysler stream sediment sample value for uh, copper that it was elevated. Chrysler team hasn't followed it up. So wait a second. Does that mean that there was some copper mineralization found in areas that were covered by Chrysler? but were not followed up by CRA? Yes, some other companies have discovered porphyry copper deposits in areas which were covered by Chrysler reconnaissance. However, in 1972, none of those deposits looked clearly economic. Nothing was anywhere near as good as Bougainville. And Don Carruthers was quite satisfied with my statement that uh, nothing's been found that would even remotely resemble Bougainville. So internally within CRA, the objective of the Craystar program was very clear. It was obvious that Don Carruthers is the manager responsible for the program. In his view, the objective of Craystar program was to make sure that uh, there is no deposit better than Bougainville. I mean, the company was already investing a huge amount of money into developing Bougainville, and uh, by 1972, Bougainville started production. The company wasn't really very keen to have a second porphyry copper mine developed in New Guinea. All that the company wanted to make sure is that uh, there is no embarrassment, you know, if someone finds something that's clearly better than Bougainville. And to this very day, Yes, uh, quite a few porphyry copper prospects have been uh, tested by other companies in areas covered by Chrysler program, but none of them have been developed so far and probably never will be developed. So the Chrysler team had failed to follow up on some anomalies. And yes, some of these anomalies did turn out to have copper mineralization in subsequent years. And some did become deposits, albeit small ones. But to date, Bougainville still remains the only major copper deposit found in that region within proximity to the coastline, which is an important point, because remember, the objective of the Craystar program was to test the region for major copper deposits close to the coastline, on par with Bougainville. Now, there have been some copper deposits found in the region, particularly in PNG since the Craystar days, but these have been on the top of mountain ranges, an area that would not have been checked by the Craystar program. There was, however, another major deposit found in the area close to the coastline, but there was a good reason that the Craystar team did not find it. The, the big Lehir gold deposit, it was found subsequently to our work in the Craystar, but gold was absolutely a no-no for exploration because of the low gold price when we were there in 64 or 68. Otherwise, we might have found Lehir. Gold was definitely a no-no, whatever it was, $30 an ounce or something. In my opinion, before we judge whether the Craystar program was successful or not, we should decide what we consider success to look like. Without that definition, the Craystar program looks to have failed as an exploration program, in that it never found another major copper deposit for CRA. There's some people that would say that Craystar wasn't very successful because it didn't find another panguna, which is the point no. of the whole exercise. Defensively, it eliminated large areas and possibilities relatively quickly. That was its advantage. 
And I agree. And if you had to cover that much ground, yeah, and we're not talking about continental ground, which is, I think, a little bit easier to cover than when you have islands scattered all over the place. The fact that it covered this huge amount of area, islands, small islands, large islands, over a period of five years, I think that's incredible. Because as far as we were concerned, anyone might have come in and found another deposit of that type in that area. We didn't know. You know, we went in not knowing, obviously, the exploration, what's going to be there. So we, we felt that we didn't want a competitor with another huge porphyry copper mine just next door. Uh, so, Jacob, do you think in the end it was a successful program? The company made a very logical decision. We have to know whether there is another better porphyry copper deposit. And by 1968, they knew that there wasn't. That gave the board of directors that additional a uh, degree of confidence, yeah, Bougainville is the right place to build a new mine and make a huge investment, right? So, yeah, let's say that Chrysler was successful in that it provided one of the uh, ingredients for the decision to develop Bougainville. And uh, it was fast, it was effective. The cost wasn't really all that high. I mean, it's hard to sort of uh, bring it into today's dollars, right? But it was not a hugely expensive exercise. The company was easily able to uh, fit it into its exploration budget. No, that's all right. Yeah, that's a good point as well. Listening to the Craystar story, I get the feeling that we are sometimes maybe guilty of having too narrow a definition of success. If you only judge the Craystar program based on whether it found another large deposit, then it looks like it failed. But as Dave and Jacob mentioned, it achieved a lot of other things that we do not necessarily think of immediately. Because of successes uh, on the iron ore search, the Chrysler experience, the company was willing to continue with helicopter reconnaissance. And uh, I think the discovery of Argyle obviously was only possible because of use of helicopters. And that was a very worthwhile discovery. It started a new industry in Australia. Jacob, can you talk a little bit about why CRA was such an innovative company? Well, there were at least half a dozen other companies that were equally innovative in their own way, in a different way. Western Mining, GeoPico, which was the exploration arm of Pico Walsend, Kennecott, the Americans. I mean, Kennecott were into New Guinea immediately after discovery of Bougainville and by 1968 using the helicopter. They discovered Octedi, which is a mine. I had mentioned earlier that the Craystar program only tested for likely major copper deposits near the coast. Octedi is a major copper deposit found in PNG around the same time as Craystar, but it was found in the central mountain range of Papua New Guinea, an area that would not have been tested by the Craystar program. They discovered Octedi, which is a mine. Across the border, uh, similar exploration was being done in New Guinea on the Indonesian side of the border, which was uh, Erzberg initially and later Grasberg. There was competition. No mining company wanted to be uh, left behind. So I believe the main incentive for exploration was that other companies were also successful. And uh, it was the fear of missing out. I mean, fear is a powerful motivator for directors. Uh, Any time another company made a discovery, the memos were were coming down, you know, why have not, <laughs> why have you not found it, right? 1960s was a period in which a whole series of uh, groundbreaking discoveries was made. And of course, CRA didn't want to be left behind. 
NCRA was successful uh, by discovering Mountain Prize, Bougainville, or previously Bauxite on Cape York. But there was also another reason. Profits from uh, Broken Hill were subjected to a special additional high royalty on profits by New South Wales government. So the board of directors of CRA was determined to spend the profits from Broken Hill on exploration <laughs> so they couldn't, didn't have to pay tax. So we are all grateful to uh, the great Broken Hill mine and the steady profits coming out of that mine. They were underwriting exploration uh, all through Australia and in New Guinea. So, Dave, when you look back at uh, the program like Craystar, what's the lasting thing you learned out of that process? Well, it was a lot of fun. It was very effective. We felt we were really, uh, you know, we were doing a pretty good job and, and, and doing what we were supposed to do. And we were doing it in a technically very effective way, which is satisfying, uh, I think, in hindsight, and uh, made um, good connections then with the various, the various people involved in those programs. Um, were uh, really top people in their area, and we got top backing from the ball right up to the board uh, in all that sort of work. So it was it was very satisfying. What would your recommendation be for people trying to do something on the scale of Christar? What would you tell them? What were the key ingredients that they should get together for a program like that? Oh, that's, in hindsight, that's very, very hard to say because I was relatively junior at the time and uh, because we probably weren't constrained so much by environmental considerations in those days. We weren't constrained so much by some of the governmental restrictions or conditions. So it's rather hard to think of a comparable thing at the present day. And I've been in exploration for some time now, so I'm not really au fait with everything that's going on at grassroots and exploration these days. Uh, but they, well, the main thing is sort of like, uh, you know, uh, seize the day, uh, take your chance when it's there and, and uh, you know, do it. And uh, there'll always be people who will naysay, who will say, no, that's, that, that won't work or that's too expensive. Or, but, uh, you know, you've really got to press ahead with these things. And I was fortunate to be in the middle of it and it was all worked out very well. And uh, the company was prepared to invest in this kind of activity. And uh, it got its rewards. It's just a great pity that the the Panguna mine, which started the whole thing off, uh, had such a sad history in the end. But we couldn't have foreseen any of that at the beginning, of course. Now, some of our listeners out there might not be aware of what happened to the Panguna mine. Well, the mine started operating in 1971-72 and continued operating till 1989, when it was shut down due to militant activity as part of the civil war that engulfed the island of Bougainville. The mine has remained closed ever since. Uh, so, Jacob, what what would you what would your recommendation be for people trying to do something on the scale of Christar? What would you tell them? The the problem with exploration on the frontiers is that frontiers are becoming increasingly remote, so that the discovery has to be incredibly rich and large to justify the huge capital cost of establishing infrastructure for a new mine in a remote new greenfield location. These days, most of the companies are uh, mainly exploring in the immediate vicinity of existing mines, so it's brownfields, deeper levels of the mine, immediate surroundings of the mine. The challenges have changed. 
So what's your um, lasting memory of having worked for CRA and more specifically having worked with Craystar in this time? Is there one thing that stands out? Well, this is just the amazing expanse of areas that we covered with reconnaissance. <laughs> it was really just, my head was spinning, coming out of a small country like Slovenia, about 200 by 200 kilometers with Kreistar or with helicopter reconnaissance. We covered an area the size of Slovenia in three, four days. <laughs> Next one. <laughs> Let's move on. Yeah, I think CRA philosophy was don't worry about the things that you miss. Because if you start worrying what you are missing when you're moving forward, you're going to get bogged down and will never make the big discovery, uh, which is somewhere further away, right? And this concept of not getting bogged down, keep moving because there is a much bigger, much more important discovery somewhere ahead. That is actually the base. That, that's what sums up the Chrysler philosophy. And it's, it's best illustrated by the diamond discovery, which was made in year four. The team that's doing helicopter reconnaissance discovered pipes at Ellendale. The company philosophy was, let's move on. We might be able to discover something bigger. And at the end, Argyle Diamond Pipe is one of the biggest discoveries. By value, probably the third or fourth biggest diamond discovery in the world. Just because the company had that ambition to move on and find something bigger. And credit to directors of CRA. I should add this by all means. This is very important. The support that directors of CRI provided for geologists in the field was absolutely amazing. There was never, ever any doubt about total commitment that directors had to exploration and the respect that the directors had for geologists and field assistants and anyone else, the helicopter pilots, local field assistants, anyone who worked on CRI exploration team had full respect and support from the board of directors, and they demonstrated that by visits in the field and also by a very simple and effective philosophy. They said, the only thing we can expect from you is to work to the best of your ability. So if a team spent a whole year working and uh, the results were not as expected, that's all right. Next year, we'll do such and such. Uh, move on, move on, right? And uh, that's why CRA was repeatedly successful from 1950s when they discovered bauxite in Cape York, 1962 uh, Mount Tom Price, 1964 Bougainville, uh, 1970 was Tarong coal mine, and then uh, successes in New Guinea. I mean, we had 50% of Misima. Uh, Wafi Golpu is a CRA discovery, Hidden Valley. Uh, Argyle Diamond Pipe, Century, let's not forget Century, uh, CRA discovery in 1990, the second biggest zinc mine in the world, all due to total uh, commitment of CRA boards to exploration. A great company. But in spite of improved techniques and new methods of transport, the same spirit of continuing enthusiasm drives on the men who search for the minerals demanded by the world of tomorrow.
At the start of the last episode, I had mentioned that Steve and I have been obsessed by the story for a while now. We wanted to take this opportunity to thank Dave and Jacob for helping us tell their story. We also wanted to acknowledge the members of the Craystar team that are no longer with us. This story is just as much about the people as it is about the ship itself. Exploration Radio is brought to you by Steve and Amar. Our producer and all-round go-to guy is Dan Hershowitz. This podcast is recorded at the Perth Music House. Audio from the documentary For Tomorrow was kindly provided by Rio Tinto. If you'd like to know more about Exploration Radio, check us out on explorationradio.com or you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. And as always, if you like this podcast, please review us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time, let's keep exploring. And hey, uh, you mentioned Bill Johnson. He, uh, Bill is a shy guy. You have to sort of uh, contact him because he likes to go into hiding. A great guy. If he doesn't talk about it, you ask him. Ask him what were his first few days uh, in New Guinea. Okay. Because I understand from what he told me about 30 years ago. He ended up in the camp and uh, in the evening uh, there was another duty. So Frank Hughes took Bill with him on a boat up the river looking for the crocodile because the crocodile has eaten a woman from the village <laughs> and they had to shoot the crocodile. And I still remember Bill saying that he was wondering what Frank Hughes was talking about because Frank Hughes said, Puk Puk Kai Kai Mary. Puk Puk is crocodile. Kai Kai is the word for eating and every woman in New Guinea is called Mary. <laughs> That was the exploration. Crocodiles eaten a woman, so we've got to kill the crocodile. Alright, so when I talk to Bill, I'm just gonna say, can you explain Puk Puk Kai Kai Mary? Yeah, that's it, yeah. Puk Puk Kai Kai Mary, that's it. Alright, cool. I'll ask him that and let's see what he says.